Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Kidnor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome back to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Have you ever moved to a new country? Felt the culture shock of a new language and customs? Born in Bulgaria, today's guest moved to New York City to study at the prestigious Columbia University at age 18, and that's just the beginning of her story. In today's candid and honest conversation, Eva Gamnishka, CEO and founder of social enterprise Humans in the Loop, shares her experiences with American culture shock, why digging deep during setbacks is crucial, and why there's power in choosing to pursue what you enjoy rather than what looks good on paper. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, now let's hear from Eva. Eva, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for the invitation. Of course. You know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work that you're doing in AI and social entrepreneurship, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. I really love the things that you've done so far, all the episodes and all the people who've participated previously are really inspiring. So I'm very honored to be one of them. Oh my goodness. Warms my heart. We're honored to have you. So look, For those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Eva. I'm originally Bulgarian. This is where I'm also currently located. I am 27 years old. I've spent a little bit of time in the US for university, but otherwise I've practically been here in Bulgaria. I studied in a Spanish school when I was younger and, you know, ever since I came back from university. I've been working on this social enterprise that I'm currently leading. It's called Humans in the Loop, and we are focused on providing employment and training to refugees and conflict-affected people. 
I've been reading it since 2017, and it's been a really great journey. You know, I started right after graduating, so it has been really challenging, and it keeps challenging me every day. And I'm just really happy to be doing something that I'm passionate about. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm lapping it all up and I just absolutely love this. And I can't wait to talk more about humans in the loop and the amazing work you're doing. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And, you know, you mentioned Bulgaria, but where in Bulgaria? And I guess, how has that impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, I was born here in Sofia, which is the capital. So for a long time for me, this was the biggest city that I knew. You know, this was the most that I could imagine in terms of, you know, scale. Um, So afterwards, you know, I moved to New York for university. And of course, it was a really enormous change. And I think that, you know, for a long time when I was younger, I had planned on just staying here, you know, staying in Bulgaria, finding work here, studying here. And, you know, our country suffers from a big brain drain and a lot of people are leaving it. So I was always determined to remain here and to work, you know, for the economic growth of the country and so on. But then at one point I got, you know, a little bit tempted to just go outside and try, you know, what it's like outside. And then I was so fascinated by the opportunity to travel and live in different places and explore. So I think, you know, coming from a small country really determined this type of desire to to go outside and to explore. And I suddenly felt that all the borders that I was placing myself previously and, you know, trying to be all patriotic and all of that, suddenly I realized that there's no need for it and I can actually, I'm free to explore and and live in different places and so on. But then something else happened. You know, I was studying human rights and thinking a lot about social change and changing, you know, society for the better and so on. And I was witnessing a lot of people traveling to different countries around the world and trying to fix them, you know, trying to do social projects there. And it really seemed like this white savior syndrome where people, you know, just go to a place or go to a country and try to fix it without really understanding it. So I was like, okay, if I want to start a social project, especially targeted towards refugees, why should I go to, I don't know, Greece or Germany or Lebanon or Jordan and not just go back home and try to start something where I know the the local context, I know the people, I can navigate it better. And it wouldn't be like a foreigner coming in and trying to fix, uh, you know, Bulgaria. So that's why I ended up back here. And I think it has been a nice, you know, circular journey. And, you know, my partner always jokes about me being so impatient about leaving the country again. Now that I'm settled, I'm becoming bored. So I'm looking for ways to escape again and to start traveling. But We'll see. I guess it's always kind of this inevitable cycle of, you know, leaving home and then coming back again uh, with new knowledge, you know, new appreciation of, of your home and so on. I absolutely love that. Why do you think we always want to leave and, you know, we just want to get out? Why do you think we have that tendency? I mean, there's so much to explore and to learn, and I think it's definitely worth it to open up to new places, new communities, new experiences, and especially spending some time and actually living in another country, not just traveling and doing, you know, superficial tourism, but actually settling somewhere. And I think it's really enriching. And 
there's definitely a trade-off between stability and adventure. And some people really prefer to just have a stable community and a stable home because that's also one of the risks. You know, when you move, you're a nobody, you don't have your friends, your community, your family around you. You have to build everything up from scratch. And, you know, it's challenging, it's tough. And sometimes you just can't find yourself in, in that new place. You know, you, you can't find your crew or your bubble, you know, and it's difficult. So it's definitely a process of growth, but it's something that I definitely have enjoyed in the past. And I think it has made me who I am. So it's really refreshing to kind of discover these new facets of yourself when you travel. And um, yeah. So amazing. So I saw that you went to college at Columbia. Incredible. Columbia University, a Bachelor of Arts. I think it was human rights major and history, maybe. Exactly. Amazing. So, you know, during that time there, what was the toughest part about making that transition? You mentioned you'd never really been out of Bulgaria, didn't really have any desire. And then you moved to New York, which is like the biggest city in the world. What were the challenges? How did you navigate that time? Ooh, it was a tough time, frankly. You know, I was 18, I think, at that time. And, you know, I came in with this really big expectation of, wow, you know, I'm going to live in New York. It's going to be so cool. I'm going to be surrounded by all of these genius people around me. You know, it was it was a little bit scary as well. And then I was actually a little bit disappointed. You know, the people at the university, I mean, some of them were 16, 17, and, you know, all of them were really intelligent, but they just weren't as mature as I thought, you know, especially you know, in Bulgaria, when you turn 18, you're already overage, you're allowed to like drink and whatever. Well, you know, in the States, until you're 21, you're still like a teen and all of the people around me seem so immature. And I was very surprised by that. So that was one factor which really surprised me. You know, I was expecting people with uh, more mature personalities, I guess. So that's one thing. So I wasn't really able to connect with people around me. I guess, you know, the language barrier was also a concern then because, you know, my English wasn't as good. You know, I had never spoken it on a daily basis. Yeah, so there are plenty of things that when you go to a new country, especially, you know, when where people speak a different language, you find that, you know, the cultural shock is not so much about what people eat or, you know, how they behave and so on. The culture shock is about you being, you know, in a new country. And, you know, for example, for people who are used to be very funny and making jokes, you know, in the new language, it's harder to make jokes that are actually funny. So they were like, you know, it shatters their perception of themselves. And so for me, you know, I had been used to all of these, you know, intellectual conversations or really interesting communities that I had surrounded myself with here in Bulgaria. And suddenly in New York, I had nobody, nobody knew me. People didn't know all of these interesting things about myself. And, you know, I wasn't able to transmit it. So at one point, I just started thinking, you know, who am I? It was a very existential period, I would say. (laughs) What happens when we feel lost and we then start to question who we are? You know, how can we even get through that when we start to question that, wow, I don't even know who I am anymore because... I feel like I'm not myself at all. How do we navigate that? Yeah, well, I think a lot of people tend to stick to some kind of anchor, you know, for example, chat with their family, old friends, you know, people who remind them of who they were in the past. I think that, 
you know, for me, it was also just trying out new things and building like a new me in the new country, which was also strange because sometimes we tend to have these avatars or projections of ourselves on social media. So, you know, depending on what types of images you post or what types of things you talk about, then, you, you know, you shape kind of like an online personality of yourself. And I wasn't very active on social media, but I was actually a part of like a belly dance group in at university. So they would post all types of pictures of me and like belly dancing and uh, performances and so on. So that's what people knew about me. You know, they were like, oh, Eva, belly dancing, you know, and everybody even back home in Bulgaria, this is all they knew about me. And, you know, there were so many other things in my life, so many other interesting activities that I was doing but I just wasn't sharing them on, on social media. And people just didn't know, you know, for them, it was only that aspect of my life that was visible. So it was really strange because, you know, sometimes what people think of you is also, you know, what determines your conversations with them. You know, they wouldn't ask you about another thing that you're working on just because they don't know about it. So anyways, it was a very interesting period for me. I just find it so, so fascinating. And so much of what you're saying, I very much so relate to I did I lived in France for a bit and went to a school there and it really I think it's those periods of times and moments in our lives I also did a little stint in China as well it's almost those times in our lives where we just throw ourselves in the deep end that we start to recognize and realize so much more about ourselves and perhaps who we really are at the core since then you know it's been many years now and you've built a business and you've gone back home, what would you say perhaps the top three things that you learned about yourself during your college days and during that time, that massive transition where you moved to the US for that period? Well, I definitely found that, you know, of course, I was very scared going to an Ivy League school. I supposed, you know, there would be so much stress and people would be so smart and it would be so hard to compete with them and so on. But I actually learned about myself that, you know, if you put in enough work, you can actually be at a very high level, even, you know, surrounded by all of these smart people, you can still have a really good track record. So I learned this about myself, you know, that I was capable of it. And it was really reassuring, you know, it was something that had scared me a lot in the beginning. I think that, you know, I was a little bit scared of taking, you know, a very professional direction in my development. You know, a lot of the people around me were doing all kinds of like debates club and political clubs and activism clubs and so on. And a lot of them were just doing it so that they could put it on their resume and their CV. And I just thought, okay, I'm not interested in doing that. I prefer to just pick something that I enjoy instead of trying, you know, to build like a self that would appear appealing to other people's or, you know, future employers. So that's where the belly dance uh, came in. <laughs> I want to see these photos. I'm going to get these photos. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just discovered that it was something that I really loved, you know. And then I also found out 
through that engagement, it was actually very interesting because belly dance has a very interesting history that ties to colonialism and mandate states in the Middle East and, you know, the exotifying or like orientalizing attitude of foreigners coming into the Middle East who, you know, were interested in seeing all these exotic dancers dancing and so on. And it actually became adopted by women in America and, and Western Europe who decided you know to discover their femininity or whatever so it's also a very controversial topic and i became very interested in and you know suddenly i discovered that everything can be political you know that's also something that i found out there and it really struck me how you know every single thing that we have currently in our contemporary society and lives you know it has its origin it has its history a lot of it can be marked by a lot of, you know, geopolitics and, and um, yeah, just historical periods and movements, a lot of which, you know, are marked by power imbalances and so on. It was just fascinating to discover how even a simple thing has such a history. So, so interesting. Oh, my goodness. I want to talk a bit about the transition back home. So, you know, I want to dive a bit deeper into the story. So you moved back home after a huge eye-opening experience for you. You obviously got your degrees and, you know, did a lot of belly dancing, let's put it that way. But in 2017, you founded Humans in the Loop, your business. How did the idea come about? And what were the first few steps that you took to get it off the ground? Yeah, well, the idea actually came to me when I was uh, back in New York. I was attending a conference about social entrepreneurship, which was a topic that I really didn't know a lot about. And there was this lady who was leading an organization called Green City Corp. They work a lot with youth from Brooklyn and Harlem, and they try to get them engaged in this type of dual program for learning and taking like their high school graduation exams and so on and going to college. But at the same time, they are offered an opportunity to work in like climate change and this type of like green urban gardens environment and so on in, in different jobs in their own communities. So I thought, wow, this is such a really cool model and idea. You know, you're helping people to study and to achieve better opportunities in the future, but you're also, you know, giving them this immediate income and professional experience. So, you know, the refugee crisis had been going on for some years already, especially, you know, back home in my country and also in the whole region. So I was very interested in the topic, but I hadn't really had a, a close exposure to it. You know, I was studying Arabic at that point, so I was very interested in, you know, the whole topic, but I really hadn't worked directly with refugees previously. So I was just like struck by this idea and I was very, very inspired. You know, I felt that rush of energy and I was like, okay, let me just start to think, how can this be applied to refugees in Bulgaria? Maybe we can help them out and, you know, have this type of program. So I actually approached the lady at the end of the conference and, you know, it's always scary when there's like a long line of people waiting to like, talk to her about something or ask her questions and uh, you know she invited me to visit her at the office um and it was very nice you know and and I just kept that idea afterwards and I was thinking okay how can this be applied I even started you know drafting some ideas for a potential project and so on and I think that was prompted a little bit also by my fear of going through the whole job application process after graduating (laughs) 
you know, because I was a senior and a lot of people around me were going to all of these job fairs and doing so many interviews. You know, I had one friend who was pre-law and she was applying as a paralegal at different firms in New York. And, you know, she had sent me more than a hundred applications and she only got like five interviews and maybe just one offer out of them or something like that. So it was an exhausting process. And I was so intimidated by this and I was thinking, okay, Am I even willing to stay in New York and start from a very low position, like an unpaid intern or like somebody who's, you know, doing all of that back office work and so on? Or, you know, should I go back home and be my own boss? You know, that's always, (laughs) you know, always the the illusion that people have about us. The illusion. So yeah, and I was I was very tempted, you know. I was a little bit scared and uh, and also just tempted about just starting something of my own, you know, because I also thought it it was very millennial of me. I thought, you know, nothing is good <laughs> enough for me back home, you know. There are no no jobs suitable for the exceptional person that I am. <laughs> so the only, you know, suitable thing would be for me to just start my own thing, which was, you know, in hindsight, of course, it's like super pretentious um but you know that was how I felt at that point and this is what prompted me to go back home for those of us who are in the midst of that perhaps we're you know trying to look for new jobs perhaps we're trying to navigate the whole confusing process that is job applications and just like what do I even want to do with my life like that's a question I used to ask myself so much a couple years ago what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who are currently struggling with that whole process? Like, what do I even do? And like, how do I navigate this? Well, for me, it was just talking to a lot of people, talking to friends, talking to acquaintances, you know, sharing some of my options, you know, some of my ideas. And then people actually, I mean, maybe they can give you a suggestion on the spot. Maybe they can just keep you in mind for the future. And an opportunity comes up and they're like, hey, I thought of you, try this, you know. That was very valuable for me because I was talking to some of my friends about my idea. And this girl was like, yeah, I actually know of this company that is doing a similar thing. You should check them out. So all of these, you know, personal recommendations, tapping into your own network and seeing what people might propose, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And maybe somebody knows somebody who's looking for a person somewhere or, you know, maybe they know of some interesting opportunity. So I thought that for me, you know, just sharing, you know, what I'm working on, what I'm thinking about, my struggles with people, it it doesn't have to be immediate help, but maybe at some point people are just going to remember you and say, hey, this would be a good opportunity for Eva. You know, why don't I just reach out to her and see what she thinks? Such good advice. The only thing I thought then was just, but like everyone else is getting jobs at law firms and like doing really, like maybe they're becoming investment bankers and or they're in consulting and like, I'm just sitting over here, like with this idea that I don't even know is like going to work out. How do we overcome self-doubt like that? Mm, yeah, I definitely see what you're talking about, especially with my peers, you know, all everyone who's graduated, let's say, from Columbia, and they're all like super successful already in different, like, either organizations like the UN or uh, banks, yeah, like investment bankers or law firms and so on, or went on to like get their master's degrees at another Ivy League school or whatever. 
it's really interesting because at the end, everyone is kind of following their own path. And a lot of people, especially after graduating, they're just feeling lost. You know, they just don't know what's right for them. They try out the different things. And I felt like, you know, it's a very important step what you do after graduation because it might determine your whole life afterwards. And, you know, for me, I had never imagined that I would work in the field of AI, for example. It was never on my list. You know, I was never interested in it. And, you know, things just one thing led to another. And I just, you know, ended up in this and I decided to just read more about it, specialize in it. And right now, you know, I'm engaging with the topic in a lot of novel ways. I'm thinking about, you know, innovative ways to do what I do in, in a better way. And let's say bring more ethics into the field of AI, which is something that I'm passionate about. So you don't know what's going to be your own niche there and maybe you're going to become really successful and really you know important in a really specific niche that you didn't know of before yeah i guess all of these paths of i don't know investment banking or consulting they're kind of straight you know you know what you're heading for uh you know what the experience is going to be it's going to be excruciating they're going to squeeze everything out of you um but you know not everyone's path has to be as straight as that. And maybe, you know, by uh, having exposure to different things, you end up, you know, becoming like a really very specialized person in one interesting topic that suddenly becomes super hip and everybody's, you know, reaching out to you and so on. So you never know. And I think, you know, success is something very relative. I could not agree more. Oh my goodness. I love it. So let's talk about the early challenges in business. You know, you mentioned that you were going to be your own boss. It was going to all happen. (laughs) I was exactly the same. Don't you worry. Exactly the same. And then you have to start, you know, what were some of the early challenges you faced in getting the organization off the ground? Oof, it was tough. I mean, I came back home. I didn't know anybody, you know. I had some friends from school, but, you know, everybody was working in different things. And, you know, I was just there with my idea, you know, and I had worked on it a little bit. You know, I took some classes in my last semester about social entrepreneurship, and it was very nice. And I also did my thesis on the topic, which was also one of the key steps that I took, which I'm very happy about because, you know, writing your thesis on this, for example, if you're about to graduate, I would say definitely it's a really good approach because it helps you discover the topic from a lot of different angles and perspectives. You get to, for example, contact and interview people who are stakeholders in it. So this is what I did. I actually got in touch with, you know, different organizations, UNHCR, the Red Cross, you know, refugee camps, the refugee agency, and I just interviewed them for my thesis. So afterwards, when I came back and, you know, I already had this idea, they all knew me already. And, you know, I knew what the situation is, what the legal framework is. I had basically done my homework. So that's why I definitely recommend just starting to engage with your topic as soon as possible, exploring it from different angles, trying to meet people who are in the same ecosystem. A lot of my friends in the social entrepreneurship sphere have also shared that this type of networking was what really changed things for them, you know, because networking does not always mean going to like a cocktail party or to some, you know, press conference and talking to really important people. Um, Sometimes it's just making connections with the people from your own environment or, you know, the specific field that you're interested in. So for me, it was like getting to know 
different refugees, different yeah, NGOs that were working with them, you know, different initiatives, knowing who's who and them getting to know me as well. So that was the first step. And I thought that this was really, really important for me to get started because afterwards, this is how, you know, one NGO told me, hey, you know, we can donate computers because we've had a donation and maybe you can use them. So, you know, another NGO told me, maybe you can organize your first training course with our beneficiaries because we have 10 people who are interested in it. So, you know, this is again, Telling people what your idea is, what you're looking for. And then maybe, you know, out of the 50 conversations that you have, one or two people are going to be like, hey, let's do this. You know, I have this idea or I thought of Eva for this opportunity. Why not get in touch with her and let her know? So I think, you know, just getting in touch with people, telling them what your idea is. I even printed like a small sheet of paper with like as like a one pager with, you know, explaining my idea and you know, giving some illustrations about it. And, you know, it really helps people understand and visualize what you mean. And maybe, you know, something just comes to their mind that is going to be really useful for you as you're building your business. So, so useful. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've connected and, you know, this is a form of networking. You could call it what you want, but I think it's the best form of networking, a podcast. But, you know, I think it could come in so many forms and it's just so valuable. I love it. Amazing. So I want to talk a little bit about the dark side of business and I want to unpack this for all of our amazing peers out there listening. Can you talk to us a little bit about the toughest times that you experienced, especially in the first kind of two, three years where you just thought, oh my goodness, I just don't even know if I can make this work. Should I quit? You talk to us a little bit about the struggles, the failures and the dark side of business. I've definitely had a couple of those moments where I was like, what am I even doing? You know, I should quit now, you know, just leave this. I remember, you know, in the beginning, I started without any external funding, any capital, any connections. You know, I started from scratch, but like real scratch. And, you know, in the beginning, it was all like bootstrapped. For the first, basically, I don't know, two years, completely bootstrapped. And, you know, we were fighting for every penny and, you know, we were working at this rented office that people gave to us for a very little sum of money every month but it was you know this small classroom and we had like five people working and every month this was a big struggle to secure clients to provide all of these people with work you know because our model was providing work to people so it was always you know me just reaching out to clients desperately and trying to convince them to work with us even though we didn't have like almost any infrastructure you know we had five people and five laptops and that was it so definitely you know at one point I actually had to take out of my own savings in order to pay the salaries of the workers you know because we hadn't had or maybe you know we were waiting for a client to pay their you know their order and still the money wasn't coming in so you know we just couldn't pay salaries so at that point I was definitely like oh what am I doing you know this is not sustainable (laughs) at all so I've definitely had some moments like that and you know afterwards after a year actually these five people that we had employed full-time they all quit because their contracts were for a year and they you know, we were having a lot of issues with the office. It was very cold. I was also being very strict with them. And, you know, I was trying to maximize their work, you know, because we only had five people and some projects were really intense. You know, they required a lot of work. So the people were very tired, I would say, you know, after a year. So all of them decided to just pursue something different. So that was the second moment where I was like, 
oh, you know, what am I doing? Maybe it's the time to quit now. But actually, you know, this just prompted a pivot in our model because we still had some clients who were interested in, in receiving the work that we perform. So I just started working with people on a freelance basis and reaching out to some other people from the refugee community and saying, hey, we have this project. Can you just help us out with it? You don't have to work full time, you know, just do it in your free time. And that's it. So basically, you know, people started liking this model much more because it meant that they can do it in their free time, on the weekends, in the evenings, they can combine it with another job or, you know, taking care of their kids. So it actually became the preferred way of working. And right now we're still preserving that model just because people enjoy it much more than the regular nine to five job. So I guess, you know, in hindsight, it was a much better approach. But yeah, at that point, I was definitely you know, just struggling to rethink, okay, the whole motto, do people even enjoy it? Do people even like it? Is it even worth it for me to organize something that is supposed to benefit refugees? And at the end, you know, they're not enjoying it. So why even do it? My goodness, Eva, I'm, you guys can't see me, but I'm furiously nodding my head because so much of what you shared is just, I absolutely resonate with it. And oh, just, yes, like, thank you for sharing that with us because I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. You know, on this show, we talk about it quite a lot, but I think it is those first two years are tough. The first three years are tough, you know, and it's like scrambling to put together a couple of pennies to, to, you know, pay your team, to pay your contractors, to pay your, for you, you had a full-time team. Oh my goodness. Like, I think it's things that we often don't talk about that need to be talked about more. A question I've got for you is, what made you keep going? I guess at one point, especially when you're like one year or two years in, you just can't give up. You say, oh, it would be a pity for me to give up now. You know, it's a very delicate balance because maybe at one point it's healthier to just say, okay, I quit and start working on something else. When you're seeing that it's not working, you know, maybe there is no market for what you're doing, you know, either just pivot or leave it, you know, and, and it takes a lot of courage to do it. So maybe I just didn't have enough courage. And, you know, I was very stubborn. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it work. But also, you know, because we did have some client interest, you know, with the minimal sales efforts that I was doing, you know, it was very, you know, just very small scale reaching out to people, offering our services. But there was some client interest, you know, there was this market need that we had seen and it was just starting to grow. And right now it's even bigger. There are so many new companies working in this field, but back in 2017, it was something very new. And a lot of the companies that we talked to didn't even know that it was possible to outsource this type of work but they liked it you know they were like yeah you know we're actually spending so much time on this and we're not getting good quality so working with a partner who can help us with all of this data for our AI models might actually be very useful so I think that this was also the factor that made me want to continue just because I was seeing that there is the market need and it was only up to me to match the market need with the supply of refugee labor and to be you know, my own one-person marketplace that tries to balance both of them. And oh my goodness, did you just make it happen? Oh my goodness, Ava, over the last four years of business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You know, you've received a lot of recognition for your work amongst all of the struggle and all the failure. You know, most notably, you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening 
that you wish you got when you were just starting out? So one thing that I'm realizing as I look back is that even though I was very proud to be bootstrapping the whole business, it was really hard to be pushing it, you know, every month and, you know, to just work month by month with all of the revenue from past month and to just try to put it into, you know, new investments or to try to hire people. It was really difficult for me because we just didn't have enough capital. So the first time when we won our first social entrepreneurship prize, that was in 2019, we won a big grant. And that was the first moment when I was actually able to hire people, pay them a good salary, invest in, you know, some improvements in the business. So it was really game changing for me. And even though I was, you know, very proud until that moment to announce, you know, we're bootstrapped, we're not, you know, using any outside funding, we're self-sustaining, you know, but if you're self-sustaining on a very small scale, this really doesn't allow you to grow, to hire more people and so on. So any type of like outside injection of funds, you know, whether it's through investment or through grants or through some financing programs, it really makes a difference in how the business can grow and so on. So I think that right now, for example, I'm considering whether we should start fundraising with impact investors and like other types of VC capital and so on. And again, I'm a little bit stubborn and I'm like, no, we should be you know, bootstrapped, uh, we should be self-sustaining, we shouldn't rely on, you know, outside capital, because a lot of startups go into that direction. And then they spend so much money on developing a technical product. And then it turns out that, you know, their product is worthless, because nobody's willing to buy it, for example. So you've spent maybe a million dollars on something that is not worth it. So I'm definitely very careful about that. You know, there are also some startups who receive some $5 million investment and then they hire like a very flashy office in the middle of Silicon Valley. And then, you know, they organize trips for their entire team and they have all types of swag and so on. I mean, it's tempting, you know, to just receive outside money and to spend it. You know, it's very easy to spend money that you haven't earned. You know, currently I'm considering whether we should go into that direction, but you know, hearing myself talk about this grant and how it changed us, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it might be worth it to try to raise some money in order to propel our future growth. And then what else? I would say definitely, you know, try to build everything with your beneficiaries and clients in mind, you know, with your users in mind. For example, this pivot that we had in our employment model that was prompted by, I mean, maybe it was on me that I hadn't really collected feedback from an earlier point, um, which might have been, you know, might have made this transition smoother instead of all the people just quitting. It makes a better story. I mean, you know, <laughs> my whole team just quit. How was your day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess, I mean, maybe if I had collected some feedback earlier from them about, hey, how are you guys feeling? What would you prefer, you know, in terms of uh, how we work and so on? What is it you like and you don't like? You know, sometimes when you're working on a daily basis with people, you just forget to have all of these in-depth conversations. And that's what clients as well. You know, sometimes a client might be unhappy with what you're doing, but they might not be sharing it. So there's no way for you to know, you know, you just do your work and at the end maybe they just quit and they find somebody else and you're like wait what happened you know what am I doing wrong but I guess it's this type of like continuous feedback that could save you all of that trouble and could help prevent you know such moments when a client abandons you or your workforce abandons you and you're just stuck there without knowing what to do. 
I absolutely love it and they're two great pieces of advice. Amazing, Eva. I want to take a moment now as we come to the close of today's episode to acknowledge you for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us and particularly us, you know, ambitious females and young women out there that we can make it work, that we can be our own boss, even though it may be quite tough. We can make it work, we can make it happen, and we can actually have a real impact. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I feel like I've actually been talking so much about the struggles that I didn't even highlight all of the things that are so great about what I'm doing. But I think, you know, it's always great to have this honest conversation about all of the problems that we tend to face. And nobody talks about these on, you know, in interviews or on their website. You know, most people tend to focus on what's successful about them and all the rises and in, in the money they've won. But yeah. And well, we so appreciate you for being so open and talking to us about all of that hard stuff today. Amazing. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Right now, the biggest value for me is that my job isn't a burden. My job is an adventure. My job is a passion. My job is something that I'm so excited about every day, something that helps me learn so much every day. And I guess, I don't know whether that's something, again, of a millennial illusion that your job has to be very satisfying and it has to be life-changing and exceptional. I guess, you know, you could also be very well off just working on a job that is simple, you know, it helps you get through the day and then, you know, maybe you're more passionate about your hobbies or your family or doing something else that you love. But in my case, I've just found something that really makes me passionate in my job, you know, in the things that I'm doing professionally. And I think it's really valuable. And I never regret having started working on it. Oh, I love it, Eva. Oh, my goodness. We've had a blast. I just I've absolutely loved this. Where can we learn more about you and humans in the loop? We're on all types of social media. Uh, you can look us up Humans in the Loop. Our website is humansintheloop.org. And then I'm the only Eva Gumnishka in the world. So you can just <laughs> look me up and I'm going to appear. <laughs> I love that. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again, Eva. It's been so awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. 
We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>